Our scripture this morning comes to us from the book of John, chapter 2, verses 1 through 11. On the third day, there was a wedding in Cana of Galilee, and the mother of Jesus was there. Jesus and his disciples had also been invited to the wedding. And when the wine gave out, the mother of Jesus said to him, they have no wine. <laughs> and Jesus said to her, woman, what concern is that to you and to me? My hour has not yet come. So his mother said to the servants, do whatever he tells you. Now standing there were six stone water jars for the Jewish rites of purification, each holding 20 or 30 gallons. Jesus said to them, fill the jars with water. And they filled them up to the brim. And he said to them, now draw some out and take it to the chief steward. So they took it. When the steward tasted the water that had become wine and did not know where it came from, though the servants who had drawn the water knew, the steward called the bridegroom and said to him, everyone serves the good wine first, and then the inferior wine after the guests have become drunk. But you have kept the good wine until now. Jesus did this, the first of his signs in Cana of Galilee, and revealed his glory, and his disciples believed in him. This is the word of God for us, the people of God. Thanks be to God. Thank you, Andrew. Thank you, Chancel Choir, the beautiful anthem and swinging seniors who were with us in the early service as well. And again, thank you all for, for being out on a weather day like today. It was Cindy Lauper, I believe, who first recorded the song, Money Changes Everything. Maybe not everything, but lots of things. You may have heard this story before. It's one of my favorite oldies. United Methodist minister was working in his study one weekday morning when the phone rang. The caller was terribly distraught. Her pet dog had just left the earth. And uh, us dog lovers know how that can be difficult. The dog had been a part of her life for several years and uh, she was terribly attached to it. Reverend, she sobbed. I want to know if you would consider conducting a funeral service for my dog. Ma'am, he said, surely you jest. That would be a long way beneath my dignity to even entertain such a notion. Certainly animals are a part of God's creation, but dogs are not humans. Never, never in a thousand years. I'm offended that you would ask such a thing of me. What would my parishioners think? What would my colleagues think? What would the district superintendent say? My word, what if the bishop got wind of this? And I'm just sitting here breaking out in a rash, wondering what somebody would do if they overheard this conversation. That's just a ridiculous request. Lord have mercy. Well, preacher, she said, I apologize for taking up so much of your valuable time. And if I've offended your sense of reverence and decorum in any way, I'm sorry. I assure you it will be a cold day in South Georgia in July before I ever call you again. And if you'll just give me the Baptist minister's phone number, uh, you won't be bothered with me anymore. She said, oh yeah, there's one other thing. I plan to offer the Baptist minister 
$25,000 to conduct my dog's funeral. Do you think that's a sufficient amount? <laughs> Sister, he screamed into the receiver, why didn't you tell me that was a Methodist dog? <laughs> Money changes lots of things. It just does. Where we're from changes things. Our citizenship matters. The Apostle Paul was a Roman citizen, and you remember he got in trouble for creating a disturbance in the temple. And just as he was about to be flogged, whipped, and beaten, he made it clear to the guards there that uh, he was a Roman citizen. And so he was delivered to the governor with the note saying, this man is a Roman citizen. What should we do? And they, of course, set him free at that time because of where he was from. Who we know changes things. I remember a conversation with my best friend from high school about another classmate of ours, a guy named Richard. Richard had landed a very top-notch kind of job with a very prestigious corporation. And we knew Richard from way back and we were wondering how this all worked out. And we found out later that Richard had married the daughter of the CEO. It does matter who you know, who you know changes things. We know Jesus, don't we? Hopefully all of us know Jesus, our friend. Jesus changes things, doesn't he? And if you had to come up with one line for a job description for Jesus, based on what we know throughout the New Testament, maybe this would be it. Jesus is a game changer. Jesus changes things. From dead to alive, from sick to well, to blind to seeing, from deaf to hearing, from unable to speak to ability to talk, from non-ambulatory to ambulatory, from lost to found, from water to wine, Jesus changes everything. The gospel lesson is taken from John chapter 2. And John chapter 2 is a revealing text. That's when we read it this early in the season of Epiphany. Epiphany means to reveal, remember, to pull back the curtain, to show something new. It's a revealing text about who Jesus is and what Jesus is up to in this world. There's a direct statement. There's a revelation here. And then there's a clue. This, the first of his signs, Jesus did in Cana of Galilee and manifested his glory. A sign as to who he was and why he was here. The symbolic clue, the opening phrase on the third day. And if we try to understand the third day as a chronological reference, it gets a little confusing, especially if you look at the three preceding events of this story. And then there's the story afterwards, the cleansing of the temple, which is a death and resurrection story in itself. And then you have this thing. On the third day, there was a wedding in Cana of Galilee. And I want to just divulge here, diverge off the path just a little bit, maybe chase a rabbit for a moment or two, but I think it's significant, that phrase, on the third day. Look back to the book of Genesis, and there was evening and there was morning the third day. And in this story, on the third day, there was a wedding in Cana of Galilee. The third day of creation. If you go back and read the story, the only day that God said, and it was good, two times the twice-blessed day, the twice-good day. It's come to be known in Jewish tradition. So what do you think was the most common day of the week for a wedding in that time? The third day of the week would have been a Tuesday. On Tuesday, there was a wedding in Cana of Galilee. 
not Sunday. Sunday is our holy day as Christians, not Monday. Rainy days and Mondays always get us down. Not a good time to get married. Not Wednesday over the hump day. Not Thursday, another tea day that's a lot like Tuesday, but it's not Tuesday. Not TGIF, not by a long shot. And not Saturday, the day when some folks don't set an alarm clock. Some of us still do, but that's another story. The Jewish Sabbath, sundown Friday till sundown Saturday, but for us, Tuesday, just an ordinary day until you tap into the biblical source here and the roots of what this is all about, the twice-blessed day, Tuesday. One of my favorite cartoons growing up was the Popeye Club, Popeye the Sailor, and you've seen some of those cartoons, I think. Many of you have. There's a character on the Popeye cartoons called Wimpy. Now, Wimpy was a pretty sorry guy. I don't think he'd ever hit a lick at a snake in his life. And one of Wimpy's favorite sayings was, I will gladly pay you Tuesday for a hamburger today. And he said that all the time. He ate a lot of hamburgers. I don't know if he paid for any of them. But Tuesday, the twice-blessed day. And we can spend a little time talking about what is a blessing and why is that important. It's a word, a concept throughout Scripture, and it comes to mean more than just a pious formality. Pastors are sometimes asked to give blessings at high school graduations and other events. Or as one writer said, we are often called on to give a blessing at a Rotarian weenie roast. To say, God bless you to a person, unless they've just sneezed, is not a common expression anymore. It was not always like that. In the biblical sense, if you give me your blessing, you irreversibly convey into my life the meaning or something of beneficent power, something of vitality, something of who you are, something also of the life-giving power of God in whose name the blessing is given. Even old, half-blind Isaac, you might remember, discovered that he had been hoodwinked into blessing the wrong twin. He could no more take the blessing back and give it to Esau again than he could take the words out of the air and put them back in his mouth and not say them that way again. Religious language, sometimes we get blessing and luck mixed up. A blessing is from God. It's something that changes lives. And we are blessed to be a blessing. And we are called sometimes to to color outside the lines, to use the word blessing in, in ways we haven't even thought about. Faithful folks, we're told, should bless God and worship God. We bless God and we praise God and we remember who God is and we honor God, but we also are blessed by God and we receive strength and joy and hope for this life and we pass that on to others. Faithful people, by receiving and passing on blessings, bless and change the lives of other people. Who are some of the folks who've blessed you and guided you along the way. Some of them maybe are here today. First Peter chapter 3, verse 9, these words, Do not repay evil for evil or abuse for abuse, but on the contrary, repay with a blessing. It is for this that you were called, that you might inherit a blessing. And so I've, uh, I think I've run that rabbit down sufficiently, hopefully, but it's important. On the third day, That's a clue as to what this story is all about and uh, the way things worked in the day and time before us. 
Now the story, a wedding in Cana of Galilee, Jesus and his mother are there and some of the disciples are there and uh, they've run out of wine. If you're an event planner or a wedding coordinator, it'd be a terrible thing when it to run out of something to eat or something to drink, something you were supposed to be prepared for. And so the steward of the feast was embarrassed and, and something had to be done. Mary, and just a little side note, in this gospel, Mary is never called by her name. She's only referred to as the mother of Jesus. And that's because this gospel was written later and everyone knew who the mother of Jesus was, Mary, so why tell people something they already knew? So the mother of Jesus, we know it was, was Mary, said to him, um, they're out of wine. And Jesus replied to his mother, seems almost rude. It's really not in the context of the story and of that time, but it seems almost rude. In one version of scripture, oh woman, what have you to do with me? And she said to the servants and the others, just, and I think she sort of said it with a sigh, maybe, well, just do whatever he tells you. I don't know why he's like that sometimes. Just do whatever he tells you. And uh, they did. He said, fill those jugs up, six jugs, 20 to 30 gallons with water. And then when the steward of the feast came along and tasted what was in the jugs, it was wine, and it was better wine than they had started with, and that was not the custom in that day, was to start with the best wine. When people got a little bit tipsy, then you could bring out the cheap stuff, and they wouldn't know the difference. But this had kind of reversed that process. This sign performed by Jesus, and his glory was manifested, and the story ends with this note, and his disciples believed in him. Not just believed he existed, believed in him. Questions come up. Who issued invitations to the wedding? Why was the family of Jesus there? What gave Jesus' mother the insight to know that he could relieve a wine shortage? Did she expect a miracle or a purchase? Or did she expect him and his friends to leave and thereby relieve the shortage. Now, if you've ever given a dinner party and had folks over to your house, that's not the best way to deal with the shortage, is it? By coming out and saying, about half you people need to leave. We're out of stuff here. Um, I think people will talk about you if you do that. But if proving a miracle were John's purpose, it's surely more witnesses to the miracle would have testified than the actually occurred. But neither the servants nor the steward of the feast knew what happened. Who then believed the sign? Jesus' disciples believed. Jesus changes things. Commenting on John's gospel, one writer tells that every story of Jesus tells us something Jesus did once and never again. They don't put it like that, but something which he is forever doing. Jesus didn't just change water into wine once. Jesus changes things then and now and always. We believe that, that he's still changing things in this world today. And what John wants us to see is that not only does he change water into wine, he changes human life and brings a new exhilaration and purpose and meaning and joy into our lives that we haven't had before. It's important something vivid 
and sparkling and exciting. We're not just existing. We're not just trying to find a way from one day to the next, but to find that way in Jesus who gives us new dimension to life. And he promises us that meaning, significance, and purpose is ours when we open our hearts to him. Wherever Jesus went, it's like things began to change. It's like water began to turn into wine. People's hearts were changed and new perspectives were, were given. But he had to do it on God's timetable. And that was so important. And I think it's important that we understand that and know that too. We pray oftentimes for God to change things, to fix things, to make everything all right. And we, it's almost like we want to show God our calendar or our phone and say, all right, God, you need to do it now and you need to do it between this day and this day. And this is how we want it to happen. Jesus was showing us. He was in line with, with God's will. He didn't always act the way folks around him thought he should act. When he was talking about going to Jerusalem, his brothers urged him to go. He said, it's not my hour. And then later he went. When Mary and Martha said, Jesus, please come. Our brother Lazarus is sick and he's not going to make it. And so Jesus waited two days and then went. It's his timetable. And to get ourselves in line with that, individually and in our family life and as a church, it's not always an easy thing to do. We want our calendar and our timetable. And Jesus is going to act in accordance with God's will. And when we begin to pray that way, it's sometimes more difficult because we have these urgent needs and concerns. But we pray for God's will in God's time and for patience and courage to wait. He told his mother in our passage, my hour has not yet come. But it did. And Jesus walked that path. Jesus changes things according to God's will. And Jesus changes things not to amaze us or offer proof, but to provide a window into that which is revealed about God. Jesus is not just a, a magician, a trickster, a clown in the circus. He can do all these things, but he's doing them for a purpose and a reason so that we know and understand. Fred Craddock said that to attend to the miraculous and miss the revelation of the story would be no more than curiosity wallowing in the unusual. To become so caught up with how the water became wine that we miss the manifestation here of who Jesus is and what the sign is that he's showing us is not appropriate. Jesus changes things not to baffle us, not to impress us, not even for our applause necessarily, but to help us see God more clearly. So we ask, have we been changed, really changed, are there aspects of our faith that still need to be developed? And getting back to an earlier point, one way we develop our faith is by passing on those blessings that God has poured into our lives. And so every day, perhaps, we look for an opportunity to bless others. And maybe on Tuesday, we look for two opportunities. Amen.